Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode 53. In this episode, we are talking about George Orwell's 1984. I am Ryan, and with me is my good buddy and fellow host, Jacob. Yes, hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, our little book club, book cult, book something or other, episode 53. It's uh, it's an interesting time to use the word book cult, because I think that will be interesting <laughs> for this episode, but yes, yeah, I'm excited. 1984, this is kind of like an omnipresent uh, book that I think it's odd that neither of us have ever read it, but you know, I guess... It's no, I read it. it, I read it. Oh, you've read it. Oh, yeah. But In you're high just, school. You're just, you're just bringing it back for the sake of... Uh, timeliness whereas i've never read topical Eh, that's fair but yeah this is gonna be an interesting episode a pretty standard episode i think for the most part we're gonna tell you a little bit about the author george orwell i'm gonna give you a very small brief summary and then we're gonna get into it i know you've got a lot of questions and i know inevitably uh the discussion around this book is going to turn to uh more modern sort of instances of, of of examples of possibly things that we see in this book, because I think that is one of the reasons why this book, uh, especially you saw within the last probably 10 years has I'm sure seen a spike in sales and, uh, you know, a spike in people looking into it because you have all of these sort of elements of, uh, that you see in this book that kind of, you can find parallels sort of within our own existences, within our own governments and and realities like that. And so, it's an interesting topic to to think about to see you know okay was this was this you know in a lot of ways seen as kind of a uh, you know a warning against the future was it seen as a blueprint I mean like what is going on here so I think this is gonna be a fun episode and you know it's it's uh like you said I think it's topical and it's it's timely given things that are going around or going on not just here within the US but around the world so Absolutely. Um, and, you know, if you haven't read the book, go read the book. That's what a book podcast is kind it's a of pretty quick based read. on. Yeah, it's it's really uh, it's really not that bad. And I do think that there there is a lot here, like you said, that we can talk about in relation to our own world. Certainly we could go back and, and talk about the, you know, 1930s and 1940s in Nazi Germany or, you know, communism. I mean. Boy, does George Orwell love love some communism? Mm-hmm. Uh, have you have you read Animal Farm, Jacob? Uh, I I do remember reading that in high school, but honestly, okay. the retention the retention of that is almost near zero at this point. It was either high school yeah. or middle school, but yeah. My my recollection of that book at this point is that pigs were involved. That is true. That is fair, and they were. <laughs> I guess that's kind of the that's that's what I remember most. Well, um, should we go ahead and, and start talking about uh, Mr. Eric Blair, aka George Orwell? And, I feel like uh, we've I feel like we've had an abundance of pen names the last like ten episodes. I want to say like four or five of them have used pen names, so that's just interesting to me. I guess I I'm not sure why, other than uh, just sort of trying to branch out or trying to have some sort of semblance of a separate identity to maybe your, your other life. I don't know. As a writer, how do you feel about that? Cause I, I do feel like we've had an abundance of pen names the last few uh, episodes we've gone with. 
it is it is weird i've i've never really understood that entirely although i have had a few instances where some of my employees at work have like found out stuff like on the internet and like read things and i'm like yeah i kind of don't want you to like know this aspect of my life i mean it doesn't bother me all that much um i guess cuz i'm i'm generally a pretty open person but it does feel like you're exposing yourself on a higher level than, you know, your average coworker would normally. Uh, but I guess, you know, that's just kind of the part of, you know, doing podcasts and writing in general. But I think that there is probably some of that. I know uh, John LaCar, uh, you know, had that uh, going on with, with his work and, you know, obviously for a little bit different reason. Um, but, like, before the advent of Google, like, how common was it that, like somebody would just be like, "Oh, I I know Eric Blair." Like that's a pretty generic name. And then sure. why are pen names never just like your you know first name and middle name or middle name and last name or some amalgamation therein? Uh, I just I don't know. I don't get I don't get pen names that much. What would be much. just off the top of your head? What would be your pen name if you just had to come up with one right now? I would want something that rhymes. Um, so it would be like. The, the first thing that came to mind for some reason was Larry Harry, but that's two first names, and I feel like that violates a very basic like order of human language. I think I would just dismiss whatever Larry Harry wrote on yeah. the basis of the fact that he has two rhyming first names. That's kind of like the double dip of sacrilege. True, but the the thing is like like even even stage names right like plenty of actors have have stage names that we that we know them by like it's got to be something easy it's got to be something like memorable right and like depending on on what kind of writer you're going to be i feel like you know using a middle initial versus just a first and last name uh can you know portray you in a different way or if you have like the you know if he went by like e arthur blair like that has a different feel than like Eric Blair or Eric A. Blair. You know what I mean? Or E.A. Sure. Blair. I don't know. It's just I don't know what I would do. I, I would absolutely slave over trying to figure it out, though. It would drive me nuts. I think I, I my pen name, I think I would choose uh, one that had a, a tinge of, absurdis, of absurdity to it so that if, for instance, I blew up and people had to interview me, they would have to look at me in the eyes and refer to me by this absurded name. So I, I think I would go with something like Bill Scrotum. Just Bill Scrotum. Just Bill Scrotum. It's like, Mr. Scrotum, when you were writing this, like they would have to look me in the eyes and just say that in all seriousness. And I would just enjoy that to a great degree of just tormenting people with the fact that they had to refer to me as Mr. Scrotum. I feel like that is totally on point for your character. That's very on brand for me. <laughs> yeah, at this point, that's very on brand. Bill Scrotum. You're going to have to refer to me as Bill Scrotum from now on. Done. Okay. So, Mr. Scrotum, let's uh, let's talk about Mr. Mr. Orwell. Let's do uh, it. He was born on the 25th of June, 1903. So his birthday's coming up here in a, in a few short weeks. Uh, he died in January 1950, shortly after this book was published in 1949. Uh, so this should have been his, uh, his last one. Um, there's a really interesting article um, called The Masterpiece That Killed George Orwell um, on, uh, on The Guardian. It was written by uh, Robert McCrum, um, Mick Crum. I didn't say that quite clearly. Um, and it kind of tells a little bit about um, 
just the experience and, and circumstances surrounding Orwell finishing this book. So I'll, I'll kind of skip over a, a most of this and just get to the interesting parts. So Orwell was like in really bad health. He um, was dealing with the fame of Animal Farm uh, that preceded this. And he was having a hard time, you know, working on this book. So um, somebody he worked with basically offered his estate up in um, in Scotland in Jura uh, or near uh, that area. And he lived basically in, in seclusion without like power and uh, and all of this kind of stuff. And if you know anything about like the coast of Scotland, uh, they tend to be, you know, very rainy, windy and just, you know, not always the, the greatest of weather. So him being, you know, ill in a remote area, uh, you know, was was not uh, not the greatest thing. So the, his only connection with the outside world was this battery powered radio. Uh, but so basically this whole book was just kind of written in this kind of flurry of, of illness and, and back and forth. And uh, Orwell eschewed like anybody else kind of helping him with the creative process. And um, it sort of ultimately was uh, was his undoing. So this book was uh, was basically finished um, right around the, uh, November, December of, of 48. It was published in June of, of 49. Um, he then fell fell ill, um, married his uh, his girlfriend at the time in October of 49. And then in January of 50, uh, he suffered a, a hemorrhage and uh, died in a hospital. And um, he was only 46 years old. He has some really like interesting life details. Um, I think he's he's a pretty fascinating guy. Uh, certainly picked up a lot of um, a lot of things in politics and and war um, from you know his his childhood and and uh, and adulthood that made it into Animal Farm and and uh, 1984. I haven't read anything else uh, by him. Uh, I'm really honestly not even that familiar with some of his his other no, uh, novels Burmese Days uh, a clergyman's daughter keep the aspidistra keep the aspidistra flying what the hell is an aspidistra uh, coming up for air and then obviously Animal Farm in 45 and 1984 in 1949 which is hard to say uh, and he did have a couple other uh, nonfiction works down and out Paris and London the Road to Wigan Pier, and Homage to Catalonia. Um, have you heard of any of those other ones besides the two? Nope. All right. Fair but enough. But I'm just a literary caveman, so it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I, feel, I feel it a little bit. All right. Can the caveman summarize this book? Uh, we'll try. 1984 is a tale of a dystopian future, although now it's past, but still kind of a, a present future. The time uh, following our main character Winston, as he works within the uh, the party that controls existence within the the state of Oceana, as he works with them to try to rewrite rewrite history for their own means and questions his own sort of existence within this this system and his own thoughts of rebellion against it. Let's go. What what was your overall feeling about this book, just from like a just a readership standpoint, like ignore the outside, you know, political things, the things you wanted to point at and say, you know, this maybe looks familiar. I know where this comes from in history, but 
but like just taking the book as a book on its own how did you feel about like winston's situation and that whole political realm um see i I will say this outside of the actual sort of thought-provoking exercise on how this sort of relates to society at large and how you can kind of I think the the most curious thing for me throughout the course of this book is kind of like everything that led up to this, right? I felt like yeah. that would have been a much more interesting story, how we go from kind of the world that we know. And we get a little, you know, in the appendix and whatnot, we get like little doses of this, uh, of kind of this history. But I, I understand that the nature of the book and kind of the the society that he's in, you know, the whole idea being that history is kind of what Ingsoc has, has said it to be and kind of what its existence is, is, is going to be. So a lot of this book to me, I just kind of felt like, Oh, I, you know, I felt a little bit more interested in like the process by which, I don't know, we, we kind of get to this point rather than just being at this point and kind of like seeing this, uh, this structure, these societies that are kind of just established in this means of controlling people and having this endless war and, all that nature. So I felt like a lot of the book to me was it was interesting as kind of like an exercise and like just the existence of this. But so much of my interest is kind of the the external musings that you have about this book. And I think that's mm-hmm. partly why it's so powerful and has kind of like stood up for as long as it has and why people are still, you know, looking to it today for kind of insight into our own existences is because you know, you see a lot of a lot of similarities and you you want to try to understand how we get to that point and how we get away from that point. And so yeah. I, I think so much of the just kind of the narrative in and of itself with uh, with Winston and Julia, like it was OK. Um, but I think that the the power in this book, the kind of like longstanding element that you genuinely like look back and reflect upon is it's 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 really hard to disassociate that with kind of your outside musings and outside thoughts. So it's really tough, I think, to take a book like this and just look at it on on the under kind of the guise of like it's just a book. Let's look at like right. the narrative the narrative elements to it and all this other stuff because I honestly think it was it was okay. I don't think it was like particularly one of those things that you're reading and you're just like enraptured by everything that is being kind of like laid out here that sort of like our plot elements that we're following. I, I, I don't particularly think of Winston as a terribly strong uh, protagonist, like to be honest, to, to go with. And and it's weird to kind of to kind of have that sort of pull because I do think that the ideas and I do think the elements and I do think how much this book lends you to observing and, and pulling away and looking at outside sources or, or not outside sources, but outside uh, experiences and kind of relating to that. I think that that's a really powerful element of it. But as a narrative, I didn't think it was uh, terribly uh, uh, amazing. I don't know. I, sure. I, it was it was very kind of like extra medium for me, if that makes sense. No, that, that totally makes sense. I mean, the the other thing like that I think was sort of disarming about it was like, you know, like Winston, when he started his his affair, right? Like he knew what the end result was going to be. Sure. Right? He even said, I'm going to end up in the ministry of love and, you know, I'm going to be tortured and I'm going to confess. And like, you know, I mean, he knew exactly what was going to happen. There was really no like hope set that like Winston was going to become, you know, some kind of real revolutionary and, you know, change sure. the circumstances of all, you know, uh, Oceania. Oceanians. 
Yeah. Oceanians. I don't know. Oceanians. Can we call them that? Is that Oceanians? Oceanians? Like, oh shit, what's happening? But yeah, like, I felt like that whole. that whole kind of thing was just was subverted and intentionally, obviously, that, you know, that things were just never going to to get better in that sense. Um, right. So much of the so much of the concepts, I guess, that were derived in this were the the really fascinating bits and less the actual like narrative, the actual plot direction, the actual character development, the actual story that had that we had to tell was so much uh, less important than the actual elements of like when you're talking about the subversion of language in Newspeak. I think Newspeak was a big thing for me in this. And you're talking about kind of like the the processes by which uh, Ingsoc has kind of like completely warped human psyche and individualism into this kind of like control element. Like all of these things are super fascinating. And the actual just like, oh, he he. Oh, the, okay. Next page. You know what's what's going on with Winston? We're progressing through this. It all seemed just like a secondary kind of. Uh, it served its purpose to uh, bring these ideas out or to flesh them out a little bit more, and less about actually like telling a story. Because you know, at the right, end, we right, kind of end right. up. I mean, we don't end up exactly at the beginning, but we kind of feel as though this arc that you would expect throughout a, a storytelling like this is very much. I don't know. It's not existent in a traditional standpoint. Like, th- like you said, throughout the whole book, we know kind of where we're heading. We don't have this sort of uh, the sort of climax. It just kind of like progresses to the point where, all right, we know what's going to happen, and then it happens, and then we kind of are left just with this dissatisfied, like, well, you know, this is this is this truly is, you know, a dystopia, and it's it truly has effectively broken down, you know, an individual's. Uh, consciousness and independence and they now just basically are are they don't exist as an individual anymore yeah did you um did you go go all in on the idea that they really had uh that much control before winston got to the the ministry of love um or you know when you read through this the first time did you think that you know, maybe it's a bit more of, you know, Wizard of Oz, that kind of a facade uh, that, that they had control and, and that they had things figured out. Uh, interested to know kind of like how you felt in, until, you know, O'Brien was really like, you know, illustrating how much actual control they had over everything and how much they could anticipate even people's thoughts and emotions as they went through, you know, torture and reeducation. Uh, I mean, yeah, there is some degree that whenever you see uh, sort of a society or something set up like this, that it's like, okay, the actual power, you you have to understand that, like, the actual power doesn't lie where the power is. You know, I want to say this is like a Game of Thrones throwback or quote or something, but the power is where the people believe the power is. And and, right. And in a system like this, yeah, you do kind of there's like a, you know, the pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. There's a few select group of people that are manipulating these ideas to coerce people into thinking that there is power where there isn't um but the problem with that is if you 
if you can establish that and sort of ingrain that into people, eventually, yeah, you can sort of coalesce actual physical and uh, sort of domineering power over people. So, yeah, it it was a little bit you kind of like question like, OK, is this really something or they've just is it just people are just kind of like teetering on the knife edge of like we've we've managed to like barely grasp and, and maintain this control over people. And then you realize, nope, nope, they've it's something that they have seriously just like completely. Uh, eradicated this idea of not of of individualism of not being in control of of not being able to uh, manage people's thoughts and and manage people's emotions and control their you know decisions throughout this entire process yeah it was it was really kind of kind of crazy because I had forgotten that you know like I had remembered basically everything up to the point where they get arrested very very clearly and I had forgotten then kind of once once you get behind the curtain, um, how much they they really did control and understand, you know, their subjects, basically. Um, mm-hmm. And it kind of it made me think of uh, maybe think of like Instagram, you know, for instance, uh, I, there's, you know, been the rumor forever that like, you know, Instagram's listening to the things that you say because, you know, you never look up something on the internet you never uh you, you know nobody ever texts you about it you never have a phone conversation about it but you, you and i might have a talk while we're doing a podcast my phone's in the same room uh and suddenly like perfect example we were talking about equipment earlier tonight uh did not google that on any device that's connected to my like instagram stuff but i would be shocked if it doesn't show up somehow and sure. you know so like even now like we're we're getting to a point as a society with like data analytics and machine learning where uh, we're starting to figure out like our own thought patterns to a point where we can anticipate potential conversations. And allegedly that's how like the Instagram advertising works, right? Is that it's accumulated so much data about our habits, you know, when we are using our devices that it can anticipate kind of what might be coming down the line. I've even heard that like, uh, that like Amazon uh, can predict, you know, before somebody knows uh, they're pregnant, that somebody is just based upon uh, certain things, um, which I think is just it's fascinating. So may not be the same kind of thing as O'Brien, but, you know, we're starting to get kind of these weird injections of uh, into our thought patterns, which is kind of creepy. Yeah, well, that all comes from that all stems from data right from this right. like mass collection of of metadata in people's lives and that stems from just this like mass surveillance that goes on amongst uh like the entirety of of your sort of interconnected world so much of people's worlds exist uh outside of their own sort of like physical interaction so much of it is digital now that yeah it's no surprise to me that you just have this mass uh like accumulation of information that you basically reduce people down to these sorts of like predictive analysis. And, and yeah, it's, it's of no surprise to me that when you sort of accumulate enough data to predict what people are going to do, that you tend to be pretty accurate about that. And that's a whole other, you know, mass surveillance and data collection Mm -hmm. and all that is a whole other can of worms that we can talk about its uses within this book and within kind of 
that to me is of all the things that you look in this book and that people want to draw parallels to and they go, oh, well, you know, so and so is a totalitarian and this and this, you know, this type of dystopian and this political group and that. The biggest thing that I think stretches across all political affiliations, across all governments, across all this other stuff is surveillance and this like yep. ramping up of availability of interested parties to inform themselves about anything that you could possibly be doing at any time because that yep. accessibility and that access into people's lives, whether willingly, because a lot of people do it willingly or unwittingly just based on kind of subversion of people's trust in uh, devices or means of communication amongst themselves has just led to this uh, like incredible uh, gross, you know, overstep in, in, your expectations of being an independent and private, you know, person and the interactions that you have and the things that you sort of partake in. Yeah. I mean, the, I think part of that, that reason is that we really didn't have a good concept of data up until probably the last, you know, hundred years or, you know, give or take, right? Like when you, Think about like the aggregation of data prior to, you know, some of the technological stuff that we have today. It was more in the realm of of things like voting, right, where you have like right. a like a mass event where people are coming together to give an opinion. Right. And until you have the like advent of technology and the ability more so to go through data that's collected as opposed to collect it. It was just I don't think something that we as human beings anticipated like being a, a problem or a window into, you know, our own behavior, you always assume that you can look at somebody, uh, listen to somebody, uh, you know, measure, you know, their, their responses, you know, for lie detector test, right. Physiologically and understand something about them, but to use the patterns of behavior, um, to anticipate future things, uh, I think is is a an extraordinarily new phenomenon in you know human history, and it's it's kind of weird to think about like how how is that going to become normalized in the future? And obviously, there's a ton ton of conversations happening in the world about you know what rights do we have to to our own data, uh, what rights do other people have, and and how much do they have to disclose that they're collecting it and how they utilize it and all those kind of things. But I always think you know like what's next, right? Like um, what is going to be the next thing that's data? And I, I don't even know, like my, my imagination's just, you know, not that, not that, uh, brave, I guess, to consider what's next, but it is scary, uh, to think about, you know, those things being used just as it's scary to think about Winston, you know, being observed by the telescreen, um, in every place. Right. Well, yeah. How, how, how prescient is that, that you have this idea from 1940, you know, when he started writing this, I guess, what, in 47, Yep. This idea of this connected device between, you know, interested government parties and its citizenry to inform them and to collect data about them. And then, you know, we have, you know, there's no need for a telescreen in every building. We've got one in our pockets. You know, we've got, yep. we've, we've got four or five in our, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's insane because there really is no, I don't know, there is no level of, true privacy that exists now with all the 
with how interconnected we are, you know, with our devices, with our, uh, you know, ease of access, with how much of our lives has been uh, distilled into packets of digital information that go back and for the bounce back and forth between each server, you know, locations of where we are that bounce back, you know, our phone location that bounces back and forth off of towers that service us with, you know, uh, data and cellular information. It's, it's, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's crazy. It, it really is crazy how it's kind of like these tools for, you know, convenience have, have so easily, um, mimicked what you know we saw half a century ago as a tool for control and for surveillance that yeah, is and, and, I, the fact that the fact that people are in any way surprised by that and honestly you know not to diminish how how negatively i guess i reflect on those sorts of things because you know i guess i would be a hypocrite yeah i mean i mean i have a cell phone and i interact with people digitally and i have all this information out there and right. um but I think that's just because you've now seen sort of society evolve to a point where that is kind of the primary channels for which you interact with others and for how you disseminate information, take in information, communicate all these other things. And so as someone who is not a fan of the fact that you have that high degree of data collection, of spying, of a lack of privacy, the reality is, is our existence as we know it now is so dependent upon those methods that it's really difficult to say, okay, well, what are our options? Either we tell the people who are doing it to stop and then hope that they stop and make them pinky promise us that we don't use these sorts of avenues for communication. And then we now have to struggle with our own personal or professional uh, endeavors against people who do use those things. It's, 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 it sucks all the way around, I think. And that's, that's to me is the biggest, because so, so many other elements of this uh, dystopia that we see in 1984, I think are, easily or not easily but are at least remedied in part by uh individuals and by like kind of an individualist mindset and and people not succumbing to sort of like uh, malignant collectivist ideas that lead to these sorts of things i think that a lot of that can be tempered the problem is uh i think surveillance and especially data collection is a really big issue that i think gravitates a, a heavily towards those kind of like uh, dystopian and totalitarian ideas. Sure. And I think too, that like, if you think about, um, you made the comment earlier about like, you know, it'd be interesting to hear how, how they got there. Well, isn't, isn't convenience one way of, of being able to introduce this technology. Right. So like with, you know, all this coronavirus stuff, right. Like we've talked about, uh, the need for like contact tracing, right. Would uh -huh. it be such a stretch uh, to, to, for say Amazon to say, Hey, if you have a smart speaker in your home, um, and somebody else does too, and they come visit you, you don't even have to say anything. Uh, your normal conversations will get picked up by your smart speaker. We'll tie back the voice patterns to their smart speaker and we'll collect the data on who's visiting who, uh, so that the contract tracing is, is seamless, right? We've heard conversations, uh, or, you know, news articles about China, um, you know, having their, uh, you know, basically like little passports that, uh, you know, say if, if somebody has been infected and they have, uh, they've recovered from it that, you know, they're fine or whatever, and they have their whole contact, contact tracing thing down. Um, I think if you 
introduce things in times of convenience. That's one way to, to sort of um, exploit them later is by, you know, using a crisis to, to then kind of open that up into a different type of utilization. Same thing, like, I mean, how, how many of us uh, scoffed when, you know, the TSA became a thing after 9-11? Uh, and we had to go get rubbed down in the airport every time uh, every time we go like, you know, I mean, that's that's a very invasive process. We have a machine that like scans your entire fucking body. I don't know what goes into that. But, you know, I mean, you're basically standing digitally naked in, in front of a stranger and not too many people, you know, even raised a question about whether or not that that's ethical, whether or not that we should give up that right uh, because it's not one that was previously ever challenged. Right. So, right. you know, you, you, you get these, these times of crisis where you're willing to give up things. And I think, you know, obviously with, uh, with the war uh, in this, in this book, I mean, that was ostensibly the, the impetus for, for most of this stuff. Uh, but even those smaller kind of crises can be a time where we really have to sit back and, and think about what we're giving up for the illusion of safety. Right. So before we like depart too much from like the like content of the book into into the world at large, um, I had a couple like things about Winston that that I wanted to ask you and, and get your thoughts on. OK, um, so one of the things that that struck me as odd um, was Winston's like affection almost i guess i'll call it for o'brien like no matter what role he took um in this book right like when he was the sort of stranger at work um you know he just had this feeling right that like he could confide in them in him and then obviously you know when he went and uh you know joined the brotherhood quote unquote uh you know there was there was that but even while he was being tortured uh, he still had this, had this, you know, sort of brotherhood with him, no pun intended, um, that didn't really, I guess, make a whole lot of sense to me, uh, especially, you know, given this is a guy who's torturing you within an inch of your life, uh, for years on end. Right. Did you, did you find that weird or do you think it maybe had to do with just like intellectual understanding? Uh, what were your thoughts about that? Yeah, I I did find it a little bit weird, and I don't know how much of it leans to this idea of like uh, uh, representing sort of uh, these type of people who can be manipulative, or even just within their presence, you kind of feel uh, like you can confide in them. It's these sort of like agents within this uh, society or within this sort of like structure of of politicism. But yeah, it. It was interesting to me, and I know that you had mentioned previously kind of the the quote within uh, his dream that he had kind of had with O'Brien and confided in him. And it did seem—I don't know if it necessarily seemed out of character, but it did seem odd that he kind of had this, this lasting affinity or this sort of lasting just, like, comfortableness with him, despite the fact that in no way had he ever demonstrated himself to be— uh, trusted in that other than I guess he was seen as this kind of like member of the inner party but sympathetic to like ideas outside of it I don't know yeah it's the only thing I could think of is is I guess the sort of shared like intellectual like space but it just struck me as weird and I, I don't know how much of that is just like 
the necessity of of having to write Winston in that way to get the point of the book across because you know obviously Orwell's point of this book is not to tell like a character driven story that is you know within itself this is just like Animal Farm really an, an allusion to the outside world and a supposed to be uh, a thought provoking um, sort of illustration of you know what could go wrong if you know we do not have our guard up as as citizens sure and you know again obviously this began at the, at the end of basically the the second world war when um, you know the world was probably really starting to ingest for the first time the full breadth of what the Nazi regime uh, had pulled off in in Europe and you know so of course, Orwell is is heavily influenced by that, and I would think that the world is fixated at that point in time on how the hell does this happen, and how do we keep it from happening again? Um, sure. And and Orwell never really answers that question of um, well, either of those questions, right? To your point, he never never addresses the the run up. Um, we are just sort of supplanted here so the conversation then that we're left with as readers really is the rest of it it's the before and the after sure how How do do we fill in the gaps how do we kind of take this example and see you know okay let's piece it together how we get from this point to there and how do we get past that if that were to kind of come about yeah so i mean do you have any thoughts about like you know, and this is where I think we need to expand the conversation a little bit to, to history and then, you know, modern times. And I, I think some of these concepts of, you know, newspeak and and double think, especially um, and then, you know, party slogans come into play. But um, I mean, we I've, I feel like we're kind of at a point, especially here in America, where. Uh, we're sort of on the precipice of of um, having to deal with some of the issues that that this book addresses. Right. Um, and I think it's an interesting, interesting thing to think about that, you know, Winston's sort of the first generation of um, citizen in this in this new party. So he kind of has a, a, a tie to his childhood or through his childhood to the way things used to be versus, you know, not being able to remember that because of, you know, how, how convoluted things have become. Is there anything that like really jumped out at you in this book as something like, you know, Oh shit, this is happening today or, you know, well, aside I, from the surveillance, the, the kind of, yeah. Mass... Aside, yeah. Aside from that, because yeah. I think that's, that to me is the most like, yeah, this jumps out. These type of methods completely jump out. I don't know. I think uh new speak is kind of uh, an interesting thing to think about. Cause I don't think that in it's in the kind of, in the pure form that we see within uh, the book is kind of a means of, of limiting um, sort of the accessibility of ideas of kind of limiting the ability to uh, converse against those sort of, you know, prescribed ideas. Like, I don't think that to that degree that we see that in mass in the, mm-hmm. in the same way. But I do think that there is, I do think that controlling language is a very powerful tool, regardless yep. of um, political spectrum or, or whatever side you're on. Because I think that shifting, you know, the, the, the language that people use, the words that people are okay to use within certain spectrums, within uh, certain conversations, communication, all that it is. It's, it's a way of limiting 
thought in a sense that you can no longer express this idea in this way because it's uh, offensive or not proper or anything like that. I think that policing language and policing speech in a sense is less, you know, I think it's often presented as an idea of trying to create an appropriate or trying to create a, you know, uh, polite or politically correct discourse or things like this. And you see it across the political spectrum. Um, but I definitely think that the idea of like of this, of kind of creating sort of a of new speak of kind of creating an acceptable means of, you know, this is the limitations that you have for expressing ideas or expressing discourse in it through that. Not only does it kind of like limit the things that you say in an effort to try to, I don't know, present an opposing viewpoint against these ideas, you're limited because you kind of are going up against, you know, if this is the, if this is speech as it is to be said, then truth can only be expressed in these means. And if you try to simply do something outside of that, then you're kind of being struck down. You know, you're kind of trying to argue against these things. Um, it's very difficult whenever you've been limited in your, in your ideas and the, in the things that you can say and the, the opinions that you can express, you know, because really that's, that's how kind of like public opinion is formed. I think is that people, they take ideas and then they look at how do you express these ideas? And if there are ways that you can express opposing ideas that you don't find appropriate towards how you kind of feel on something, then you're, you can work to try to limit, the speech or say like, well, you can't say that, or you can't say this, or that's inappropriate to use in this type of conversation or dialogue. And you can kind of, I don't know, limit opposition naturally through controlling language rather than, rather than, I guess, sort of evaluating ideas or evaluating policies or principles that people have. If you can control their language, it doesn't matter because you can shut down anything if they were to step out of line or say something inappropriate or anything like that. So that to me, is not on the same level, but that to me is a huge kind of red flag that I see in not just political discourse today, but just general intellectual discourse or even in unintellectual discourse, right? Is the policing <laughs> of speech is that yeah. somehow ideas are negated because of speech and all of a sudden it's like, well, I can dis, I can basically just disassociate you as an individual worthy of whatever idea that you're espousing because uh you violated some prescribed uh language covenant that we've made with you know society at large yeah i th i think a, l a lot of the similarities to me are are really in that you know kind of double think and double speak if you will kind of kind of yeah. realm right where we're you know, doing away or completely ignoring with ignoring like just total facts. Right. Um, and so there, there was a, there was a section in, uh, in this book, I think it was on page 212. Um, and it, it's talking about that whole, like the party's concept of black and white, you know, black can be white when, when it needs to be. And th this is the excerpt. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read this real quick. Uh, Applied to an opponent, it means the habit of imprudently claiming that black is white in contradiction to the plain facts. Applied to a party member, it means a loyal willingness to say that black is white when party discipline demands this. But it means also the ability to believe that black is white and more to know that black is white and to forget that one has ever believed the contrary. 
and I, I think if you just take like some of our, uh, you know, political discourse um, and, and I'll, I'll just come out and say it like Donald Trump is uh, a master of either idiocy or or double think. And I think honestly, there's there's probably a bit of both going on. Um, but clearly something is at play in the administration to repeat false claims to a point where they uh, become fact through repetition, which is absolutely a thing, right? Uh, collective memory is is often dictated by, you know, who controls uh, the discourse about something. Mm-hmm. And so there are there's definitely attempts to do that. And, and, you know, again, Donald Trump is not the first president in the United States of America to deploy that that kind of strategy. Everybody uh, since the beginning of time have, have has tried to, uh, you know, craft their message. The, the thing that I think is especially alarming in this administration uh, and and well, and frankly, you know, prior administrations, I think, you know, Bush and the war on terror uh also uh, was was fairly alarming at certain points with the amount of information that we were getting. Um, but the fact that there are finite facts that, you know, somebody can hold up a tweet and say, you said this yesterday and uh, he's going to say, no, I didn't I didn't say that. And there's there's no other way to take it. It is it is just that. And it's it's this repetition of that activity that I think is a perfect example of, you know, black is white, white is black. Um, And it's, I find that piece just so alarming, that gaslighting of, uh, you know, journalists and frankly, even just the political base of his own party. And you start to see that people buy into this stuff, right? Uh, I mean, how many... How many Republicans don't believe in the science behind the the coronavirus stuff, right? And um, not because some of them necessarily eschew science, but because people have put up against it, you know, the the economic cost, right? And those two things are it's a false equivalency, right? Um, there are still there are still things that have to be addressed from a health standpoint that you know we're, that are going to have an impact on the financial side, but. You can't ignore medical advice in favor of only caring about the the finance side of things. And it's just it's so fascinating uh, and terrifying to to kind of see that that discourse play out. Uh, I mean, Charlottesville is another great example. I mean, Trump was in the middle of giving a speech uh, that was obviously written for him, denouncing, you know, what had happened uh, there. And in the middle of it, you know, he does his signature thing. He looks up and uh, makes his comment about, you know, there being very fine people on both sides and completely subverting, you know, everything that he had said to that point. And it really is a perfect example, I think, of of doublethink. And it is exhausting. I don't know about you, but like the looking at the world and like seeing those things and seeing that there are so many people that willingly accept or ignore that behavior is just it exhausts me and it infuriates me all at the same time right i mean i i definitely think that you're you have a point when you say you know it's it's very visibly obvious trump is an interesting person and i don't say interesting in a very uh, positive way uh <laughs> he is i as someone who is i'm usually pretty apolitical right policies yeah tend to I tend to have a lot of I like ideas and tenets of my I guess own sort of 
ideas of how things work, how they should work, what's most prudent. I, I tend to fall in a lot of different spectrums, right? I don't necessarily believe in and, and prescribe to one political I, I ideology. I don't really have a political identity that's, you know, favored towards uh, one group or the other. Uh, but I think it's it's very tough when you have a sort of a president who is such a visibly frustrating and sort of non-coherent uh, individual about 90% of the time. It's really difficult that it's it's so hard to actually like distill things that um, he says or does and take them for merit whenever you have so many uh, self-contradictions, so many just complete nonsensical tangential things that are being kind of brought forward that it it does almost seem as though it's it's purposeful and it's mm -hmm. kind of it's it's meant in a way to sort of distract and and you know it's it's a really easy thing you know he's kind of like hey you know he can operate as this individual that distracts attention from perhaps other things that are genuinely going on because he's such a polarizing person that he'll do or say something and whether it's you know, it's intended or not, you know, people go, oh, my God, you know, this and, you know, you'll have uh, individuals or media that will that will fixate on this sorts of thing. And, and it is interesting kind of this. There is a lot of just inherent contradiction in everything he says and does. And it's it is it's incredibly frustrating as an individual who in all genuineness, it's kind of like, you know, I tend to try to look into things and reflect on things and, and try to draw as much positive as I can out of the things that people say and do. And it's it is difficult sometimes because for every instance that I'm like, OK, he's saying this, he's doing this. What can I draw from this that can be positive? It's it's typically followed up in short supply or not short supply, but it's followed up in short order by something completely opposite or completely, yeah. as you would say, just sort of nonsensical. And it, it does it. it creates this level of just confusion and this level of well you know now it's kind of as an individual you're not you're not really you're not really allowed to kind of look at things and say okay let me take the merits of what you're saying you're doing you're now sort of basically prescribed to okay am i part of the opposition for this idea am i part of i'm following him because he represents something and i think that's what you get at where we're kind of at you know as a yeah country as a whole you kind of have now this sort of divisive and and i don't think that that in any way shape or form is entirely due to trump i think divisiveness no is is incredibly prevalent on both sides and especially when you see kind of media that have right, uh, right. sort of elevated their own stance and elevated their own position preying on that sort of they go well all right here's an opportunity to take advantage for ourselves in this situation where there's a lot of confusion among people and we maybe want to you know, push this issue or push this issue. And, you know, it kind of is self-serving whenever we kind of elevate this level of confusion or this level of contradiction or, you know, we'll print something and it won't be correct and we'll kind of come back. And, you know, it's, I, it's, it is difficult because yeah, double think as an idea, it's, it's very, I don't know. It's very kind of like intoxicating to see people sort of unawareedly, I don't even know if that's a word, unawaredly, unaware <laughs> we'll go with it. Uh, when you see people kind of unaware of this own sort of like cognitive dissonance on either side, just sort of mm -hmm. engage in these type of ideas where it's, you know, where people will contradict themselves constantly uh, and yep. and see nothing about it. Look in no way, shape or form, like identify the level of contradiction that they're sort of 
espousing there, whether it's for one idea against an idea, whether it's, you know, they they want someone to be held accountable for this act or behavior while also not really holding themselves accountable or holding anyone else accountable uh, within their kind of sphere of people that they, you know, hey, you're my ally, so you don't have to be held accountable for these type of contradictions of this behavior. And it's it is as, as an individual who I guess is kind of not really emotionally or intellectually prescribed to one way or the other it just i think the biggest effect that it has is just creating a utter contempt for anything remotely relating to and around these type of issues and it sucks because i know that you know especially now you know not to get too big into kind of protests or anything like that or covid but you know 2020 about it well, 2020, I, I, this isn't something specifically relating to those, but those are just, I think, examples of how you've had these really big, divisive, prevalent issues. And you mm-hmm. have a large, I feel like you have a large group on one side or the other that are just t- going full bore with this degree of cognitive dissonance, this degree of doublethink. And then you have this sort of large, uh, maybe central population that is either apathetic because of the the how great a degree of cognitive dissonance there is or simply just like they are sympathetic towards one side or the other but the idea that it's it's so hard to like you know oh i can i can be sympathetic towards this idea but there's so much like there that's also awful it's really hard to kind of like disassociate that and it's it sucks because then you just kind of are left with this uh this sort of like apolitical apathetic like apathetic apathetic uh just sort of (laughs) disinterested group of people that really you by having like it's like each side is winning right because they're sort of just it's like i'm not trying to necessarily persuade you i'm not trying to necessarily uh figure out the merits of why you should believe this or why this is would be a good policy i'm here Mm -hmm. to just sort of dissuade you in all form or fashion towards sort of having your your ideas prevail towards the other side and then it's like, well, if I can accomplish that, then I can see that as a success rather than trying to actually, you know, trying to actually form a coalition of people. I'm literally just trying to fragment so many people that my little coalition of power can remain in power, can can enforce the things that we do and continue this struggle back and forth with the other group of people that have managed right. to wrangle up enough people. And it's it's just sucks. And, and it's sad. Yeah, it is. And and that's the that's the hard part about, you know, all of these discussions, whether it's, you know, politics or protests or, you know, coronavirus or, or whatever, is that, you know, there there is always some gray area to um, to everything. And I think that a majority of people um, understand like a balance between, you know, needing a police force, for instance, that's effective, needing social programs and absolutely needing uh, racial equality in this country. And that it's that is far overdue. Right. But like, I think the difficult thing is that the discourse that that bubbles up to the top and certainly the narrative that's pushed by uh, major news outlets tend to be one side or the other in as small of a, of a bit of information as, as possible so that it is an either or type of decision. It's the same reason that we only have two political parties in this country, right? Uh, I, I couldn't sit down and, and, uh, and look at a, a list of, you know, the 
who, who Joe Biden, whatever he he believes uh, and, and look at Trump's and say, like, yep, I'm all Biden. Every everything that he says that, that he stands for, I agree with. And then, you know, the opposite for Trump. The The reality for most people is that there is always something like you said, you're, you know, a, a, have kind of a independent thought process when it comes to politics and a blending of, of concepts. I think most people would would agree, even in a social context. But it's hard, one, to have those conversations at a like global scale that, that we need to or, you know, a countrywide scale that we need to, especially around like racial equality. And then the, the simple other fact of the matter is that sometimes to affect change, you really do have to to completely bifurcate, um, you know, the the group. You have to segment things one or the other in order to push something forward, right? And your your ideology, whether it's you know pushing for um, you know defunding police departments and and racial equality, um, or it's something whatever the opposite of that is i guess keeping things the way that they are today um one has to go all the way to the other side to get somewhere in the middle right and i don't think that that's a healthy place to be and i think that i'd be interested to know how many other countries politically have that kind of phenomenon i mean i know like you know the uk and germany have several other political parties you know obviously but everybody kind of summed up in liberal or conservative or slight variations therein. Um, so I, I think it's just difficult when you get a country, you know, this size or the world, you know, on a global scale to really have those nuanced conversations in the sense that like you can affect change for, for everybody involved. And I think one of the things that it, that it comes down to is, you know, just individual accountability, right? Like you obviously need policies in place that are uh, that are honest and beneficial um, to everybody equally, just as you need politicians who are honest and beneficial to everybody equally. Um, you know, and, and it's but those conversations about, you know, who should I vote for in November or how should I, I how should I react to this conversation around racism? What What are the things that I need to do? Those those are things that you have to take within yourself and within your small circles of of people, um, you know, your family and your close friends and figure those things out and make them make them actionable. So one of the things that I was I was thinking of, though, um, when, when you at the, at the top of the podcast, you know, you said you wondered how how things got to where they are. It's it's not a stretch. And, I, and I've I've made the reference before to see the political discourse slipping here the way that it did in Nazi Germany, right? It's not hard to see how somebody like Donald Trump, um, if that type of language were to per perpetuate beyond his, you know, first four years in office or, you know, he became a dictator or whatever it is, how, you know, we could become the kind of uh, country that's depicted in this book. And so I got to thinking, like, what would you do to undermine the party? What would you do to stop something like this from happening? If George Orwell is writing a book two years after the end of World War II and figures out um, some of the themes that came out of, of, of fascism in Europe, and we're starting to see those things here in this country in at a pace and a volume that is just way, way bigger than it has ever, ever been.
What would you do to stop from becoming Nazi Germany or Oceania? I mean, that's tough. I, I guess, you know, from an individual standpoint, you look at, uh, again, kind of what's going on around the country through through protests and whatnot. And I know that there's been there have been plenty of people that have co-opted that into something else uh, that actually kind of undermines that. But honestly, I, I do think there is power um you know, in, in finding, you know, and being an individual and trying to stand up for, for things like that, that you believe in. Um, I mean, you've seen it, you know, the, the effects of the protest, whether you were on the side, you know, whether as an individual at home, you completely are on the side of the protest or on the side of, you know, the opposition of a lot of what's going on with that. It's really hard to say that they have not accomplished a lot in the in the two weeks of doing this. I mean, you see all right. the examples of legislative action being being put forward towards this and and a lot of action within, you know, private sectors as well that you know, it, it does kind of open your eyes that that at the end of the day, the power lies, you know, in this book, it was it, it was, you know, 85 percent of the population or so are the proles. Right. And they're basically mm -hmm. just kind of left alone to do what they want because they've kind of been brought to the point where they are not seen as a threat. Right. They're they're complacent. Right. They're sort of just left to do, you know, whatever they want. And they're sort of channeled, uh, you know, their animosity or their issues or whatever channeled into, you know, your two minutes of hate, those type of things. You're your kind of collective enemy and then you're kind of just forgotten about. But the reality of it is, is, you know, when you have, when you can sort of mobilize uh, that group of people, if they're all kind of feeling that something is out of whack, that is not in alignment to the belief structure that you think that this country should operate on, then yeah, that to me is probably the most effective, um, thing that you can do especially as an individual because you know your power as much as i am very big on like oh the individual the individual doing sort of things uh, you know living their life and 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 having control over their own life the reality is is that we've kind of digressed into a system now that it's really difficult it's really difficult mm -hmm. to just be like you know what i'm going to run for office because i'm an individual and these are my views and i think that this should change you know there's there's so many barriers now artificially that have been put into place to kind of restrict an individual's ability to actually enact change that the reality of it is as an individual the only way that that's going to happen is by cooperating with others to create something like what you're seeing going on now so yep. honestly, I, you know, as, as much as I would love to say, well, you know, I'd run for office and I would, I would go out there and I'd communicate with the people and, you know, tell them what's wrong and do all this. There's so many, there's so many barriers to that now that have been put in place by the people that are in those positions already because they like their, they like the position that they're in and they like, you know, having a specific segment of people that are going to be, you know, Hey, you have to meet this criteria of a certain of a certain level of income or wealth to even th even remotely dream about holding office at this certain level. And, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a universal thing. There are people that are kind of exceptions, but for the most part, you know, you have to have this level of wealth. You have to have this level of interaction with other powerful entities, whether it's uh, political action committees, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, organizations, companies, things like this. You have to be, you know, you have to kind of 
you, you can't just as, exist as an individual with a platform and say, hey, vote for me. This is my platform, guys. And, and then people right. are going to come out and vote for you, right? Like you're not going to be able to compete on a level as an individual with those who have made those concessions into the system that exists. So, yeah, so I guess, you know, prior to what, you know, what the society that we see in Oceania with NSOC, I guess the, the result would be, hey, get out there, organize with other people and, you know, bring numbers, right? A show of force yeah. that, hey, we're not going to abide by this this you know token of of what you guys want as far as control like we this is what we want this is what we're standing for this is what we're going to continue to stand for until you know something happens to rectify that yeah and i think you know for everybody else you know i i think that even if you're not going to go out there and and protest or you're not really sure like how you should feel about, you know, things that are going on. I don't know anybody that has just walked into this world and, you know, known, you know, whoever they they've known, uh, you know, growing up in, in their family and had a really well-informed opinion on the world or the people that live in it without going outside of their insulated little units and trying to listen to other people. Right. And reading can be can be such a powerful way to ingest other people's perspectives and we've talked about that before but the one thing that that i think that has exacerbated this entire like political like situation in this country for honestly 20 years now is our inability as as individuals to just shut the fuck up and listen and be okay with the fact that your opinions can evolve over time that you don't have to have uh, you know, some well-established and concrete position on one thing throughout your entire life. You can meet somebody at a protest and hear somebody uh, talk about their existence and, you know, change entirely your opinion on, you know, police, right? Or white privilege or whatever it is. And you know what? That is totally acceptable. But what's not acceptable to me in this whole political discourse is just clamming up and not doing anything to try to understand somebody else's perspectives. Our minds are wired in such a way that we just are often, our instincts are not uh, the most reliable indication of, you know, what we should do, what's going to make us happy as individuals, and all of those kind of things. And I think until we as, as a society start to loosen up and to not become as defensive when somebody tells us that we're wrong and we really try to internalize that um, and, and figure out where they're coming from. I, I think that, you know, we're going to continue to see this, you know, pinball back and forth, um, you know, and some people may wield it dangerously uh, like Trump does. Uh, and some people may not wield that as as dangerously, but it's it's really incumbent on all of us to just do the small things as individuals to try to affect change and try to understand one another. And I think as, as long as we're doing that, um, for most of us, that's, that's all we can do. Yeah. Well, all right. Do you have anything else? I mean, I, mean, I could, I could talk, I could do a whole yeah, podcast. This says a lot. Just like venting about, about this stuff, but we need to get to ratings coming we, up next on Jacob and Ryan's vent podcast starting yeah. next week. Rage Podcast 101. Um, okay, this was my book. I'm going to go first. Go for um, it. 
I struggle I struggle with this book a little bit. Uh, I think as as a text itself and like as a story, not that great. I I don't really like Winston. Right. Uh, I think that uh, Orwell's writing style is fine, but nothing compelling. Uh, it just it was sort of uh, okay. Gets his point across. Where this book shines, obviously, is in its assessment of you know just politics and human nature and raising you know awareness of of these issues and uh using obviously fiction to to do that so i want to put this on my middle shelf but because it just it has stood the test of time and creates so many conversations one that we cannot possibly encapsulate in an hour it's going to have to be a top shelf book for me yeah i mean i'm very similarly minded to you on that uh, instance like i said i i don't think the actual like narrative of this book is super compelling. I don't think it's particularly enjoyable. Uh, the entirety of this book's merit, I think stands upon kind of the ideas that it puts forth and how prescient that has been basically at every point, I guess in, in human existence since then, right? Whether yep. it's, you want to talk about, you know, the sixties, the eighties today, whatever, it seems like there are elements that are persistent within this book that you can see within sort of a in institutions that kind of like coalesce power together for whatever means possible whether you think that they're doing it for altruistic or uh you know dictatorship purposes a coalition you know coalescing power together leads to these things whether you uh whatever the 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 outset intent of is and not and i think that's an incredibly powerful examination i think that's an incredibly powerful idea and because of that yeah i'm gonna put it on the top shelf because of how important i think this read is for a a person trying to understand what that leads to right so yeah, yeah so so you know for a narrative not amazing but for an idea and a book to be consumed and thought about after the fact absolutely i'll put a top shelf excellent uh okay so this was my pick you you're next up you got something for us i am next up so whenever you said we were going to do this book i had a few in mind after the fact uh, that weren't going to be necessarily tangentially related to this but honestly i think since we're kind of in this mode since we did this book we need to do something you know if there's going to be ever a time to do um Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. I think now is a really good time for that. It's been kind of on my shortish, longish list for a while, okay. and I know I can't remember. I I can't remember an episode that we've done in the past, but we kind of done this where all right, we're still kind of in this vein. We want to get another piece, like another kind of like highly regarded uh, piece of material that sort of is within this same sphere, so we can kind of have like a prolonged sort of discussion about this over the course of two episodes. Although I will say, Brave New World is kind of the it, it it is it is in the same sense of a dystopian future. It it kind of turns things in a sense that it's less sort of a dystopian future bound by force and more of a dystopian future bound by convenience, bound by sort of uh, lack of interest, sort of a complacency amongst the citizenry. Which I think, as much as this, as much as nineteen eighty four, kind of like reflects on a lot of issues. I can see 
a ton of issues that we're going to be able to pull from uh, this next one. And, uh, you know, it's been on the short list. I haven't read it. It's, you know, super highly regarded, uh, you know, great book. So I'm excited. So we're going to kind of continue along the same vein of dystopian futures, which I know everyone I'm sure is just in love with right now with all, you know, all the yeah. events considered going on in the world. But honestly, 2020 is what it is. We're, we're halfway through it at this point. We should just own it and like fucking let's just, let's just lean into it. So, you know, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley is going to be, uh, episode fifty four. So that'll be fun. I, I like it. You know, we could we could uh, bring it like full circle with uh, with a lighter book after that. You know, uh, Huxley wrote um, Island as a utopian like complement to a Brave New World. I don't, or maybe you don't know that. Uh, but I didn't did. know that. You're just dropping yeah. lit facts on me, right? Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. So uh, it was like this journalist got shipwrecked on a on a fictional island. And, uh, yeah, it's like he, he wrote that, I think, four or five years after uh, A Brave New World. I've never read A Brave New World, so it's going to be a new one for me. I'm, I'm excited for sure. And we get to kind of carry over some of our, our conversation inevitably and uh, talk about two books um, kind of right next to each other, um, which are often compared. Uh, and I don't think we've ever done that on the podcast, so. Yeah. That's kind and of if, exciting. If we really wanted to just throw it way back full circle, we could read uh, Sir Thomas More's Utopia just to get the uh, whole full yeah. yeah, just get just, get all the, like, just, just balance two yeah, utopian ones, just two dystopian. Just throw it back about 500 years. No big deal. Yeah. Now, I'm going to I'm gonna think about uh, 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 maybe, I don't know if I, if I want to do something happier or if I want to stay on kind of the topical thing but I, I feel like i feel like we kind of owe the podcast maybe something a bit lighter something that's gonna oh sure cleanse sure, the palate sure. of we can't just keep hammering and, home dystopia you know we're just I, really I, we're really leaning into the mood <laughs> that 2020 has kind of brought about for everyone. yeah i i could do it i was gonna tell you at the at the top of the podcast um i for i wasn't thinking i ordered 1984 um whatever whenever i chose it and then um, I was going through my bookshelf this weekend and doing a little bit of organization, and I forgot that uh, I already had a copy from high school that was still on my shelf, and my like only rare book, and I've always wanted to like start collecting rare books, is a first edition 1984 with the original dust jacket. Um, and uh, so I have three copies of 1984 now. <laughs> That's a lot of, hold on, let's, I mean, we got to do some quick maths on that. Yeah. 1984 yeah. times three. That's a, that's 59.52. That's really far <laughs> in the future, honestly. Yeah. That's uh, we're talking about just really dystopian societies in 59.52, so. Yeah, so that's, that about sums up my, like, material possessions. I just, I think I have, I think I don't have something, I buy it, and then I find out I have two of it. Yeah. Now you have that's the way it works. Of, are you going to well now because you put it on the top shelf you can't possibly donate the book you have to keep all three copies you realize well, that's I'm gonna like a get, permanently I'm, binding uh resolution yeah. there so because because of the condition of my rare book i'm never going to read that that's just there to to be a part of i do have some author signed books uh that i've kind of got in this in this thing and some stuff from the early 1900s um like german stuff that my, that my grandmother had but um uh, I am going to give a copy to my dad. He's never, he's never read this. Um, and oh, lovely. 
yeah, I feel like I feel like it's it's time for him to to read it. I don't know what he's gonna think about it, uh, but again, this is this is a book you talk about, not not just think about. So, sure, be nice to talk to him a little bit about it. They did uh, they did listen to the uh, uh, the episode we did on uh, Devil in the White City. My, both my parents um, had read that book, and so my mom called me. Uh, she's like, oh, I like listening and. Uh, you know, we had a long conversation about the book, and uh, I think my parents really enjoyed it. So, hopefully, give him a copy of this, and he'll go back and listen to the. There you go. You'll just start it. Well. You'll start a new habit with your yeah. folks. Uh, I'm sure I'll get a a text every now and then, like you shouldn't cuss on your podcast, but you know, it is what it is. I guess. Yikes! Yikes! Just remove all the all the bill scrotum stuff at the beginning i guess oh no bill scrotums yeah that's that's definitely gonna be part of the episode Ah, well shit yeah oh well uh thank you for listening to this episode next episode is going to be on aldous huxley's brave new world thanks for listening and until next time